Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This third series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of events, the sector of the market that's been most hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to introduce Liz Berry from Hologramica to talk to you. I could give, and I do sometimes give, long introductions to people, but I'd like to say you know, Liz is one of my closest friends, and the best introduction I can give to you is she was introduced to me by the person who introduced us as an international woman of mystery. So with that, I'm going to say hello to you, Liz. <laughs> well, that's quite an introduction. So I should probably say nothing and you're going to be, uh, you're going to be struggling for the next 40 minutes in that case. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, so introduce yourself and give us a little bit of a, your history and what you do. My first job out of college was as a technician for the world's first moving light company. It was a company called Verilite. And it was an incredible introduction to the world of events, TV, um, all kinds of live experiences. So um, I I realise I'm talking to a bunch of AV people. So uh, um, as a lighting person, I'm going to assume you know nothing about my world. And there's typically um, lighting companies that specialise in different areas. I'm sure actually it's the same in audio. So you'll have an audio company that specialises in TV, that specialises in concerts, all of that kind of stuff. Um, So had I started work for a, let's call it a normal lighting company, I might have ended up just doing one particular discipline. But the thing about Verilites was they were the only thing that was available. They were very expensive. And they ended their market was basically everything from TV shows to concerts to corporates, parties. But they were all um, very, it was all at the top end of every one of those markets. They were very exclusive. And um, I, I always say I worked my way down because eventually moving lights became more ubiquitous, the budgets got lower, and um, the gigs got less, um, let's say, well-appointed. So, um, yeah, I I started off as a technician. Um, There was obviously very little knowledge about the moving lights when I started out. So I started in the workshop, I went on the road, I very quickly got dumped in at the deep end, and um, I was asked to be an operator. Now... So, so, so I'd gone from the very technical side. I was now being on the creative side. So that just kind of followed a pattern that had started from, from being at university where I'd, I'd been at Manchester University. I did um, an English and philosophy degree or I started it. And in my first year, I got three things happened. I got the highest marks ever seen in an English exam at Manchester. I got the philosophy prize, but I also crucially got involved with doing sound and lights in the student union. So I ditched the English and philosophy and went and did electronics. I did an HNC in electronics at South Bank Poly, 
and um, ended up as a technician for this moving light company. So fast forward, I was a technician, I was an operator, I then became a lighting designer and I became a creative director. And I, the, the, one of the artists that I started working for was a guy called Robbie Williams, who I'm sure will be very familiar to your European listeners, maybe not quite so much in America, but um, he was a very, very big deal over here. And started off, he was kicked out of the boy band and um, started off a solo career where we couldn't sell 600 seats in one of the tiny clubs in the north of England. And probably four or five years later, um, we were doing sellout shows of the largest shows ever in the UK, um, which was 125,000 people a night for three nights at Nabworth. So that he he had this amazing trajectory, and I kind of I was riding the rocket ship, and I got dragged along along for the ride as well. In parallel with that, I was also the moving light operator for Pilot and the first three series of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which got syndicated worldwide. And on the very first Pilot show, they had sort of the lighting designer. I wasn't the lighting designer; I was just the operator. And they um, they decided where most of the lights were going, and they had I think four lights left over. And they said, "Well, where do you think they should go?" And I said, "Right, I want them right in shot, two on the floor, two in the air." And lo and behold, that's where they stayed. And to this day, those moving lights that you see, you know, in every single edition of the show worldwide from that day to this, are the lights that I originally placed in those in in the pilot of that show so um it, it didn't make me a fortune but it does make me feel you know it, it was a, a, an amazing opportunity for me to work at the very highest levels so I was on the road for over 10 years working in various roles all around the world everybody from Guns and Roses to Metallica to say I was creative director and lighting designer for Robin Williams for a lot of the time, um, a band called The Human League, who again the Brits might know and everybody else maybe not so much, but they were quite a big deal as well. When I wasn't on the road, I was doing a lot of TV shows, and when I wasn't doing TV shows, I was doing a lot of corporates. I got a lot of very broad-based experience. The lights were always the same, they were always exactly the same, but I, I got a very good exposure to how the different areas of the lighting market worked, how the, um, you know, whether it was unionised, whether it was just, you know, a, something that had been put up in a field somewhere and it was a, a completely, you know, like a festival or something that had come out of nothing, but certainly in the UK and Europe wouldn't have had very much regulated labour to do with, you know, you start to go back into buildings again and again and again. You get to know how different countries work. You get to also understand how to move things from A to B as well, how to tour things. The difference between how you would approach designing, let's say, um, I don't know, I did, I, did the, um, I did the most expensive wedding ever in Europe which was a 44 million euro wedding for a steel magnate. And the build for that was something like two weeks 
even once the venues had been built. Well, that's obviously a very different thing from going into a, a touring scenario where you can literally tour three countries in three days. So um, I had, a, it, it, it was an incredible amount of experiences. And at the time, I pretty much just kind of all took it on board and got on with the job. Um, now, I mentioned Robbie Williams. He had a track on the soundtrack album for Finding Nemo. And his management came to me and said, can you go out and see if you can find something? Quite often they want just like a little, almost like a gimmick, something that's going to grab the headlines, get the you know, front page photograph, the, the, the wow moment that's going to attract the attention for the publicity. So they said, can you go out and just have a look, see if there's anything we can do at the premiere of the movie. So I went out and looked at various things. And one of the things I came across was a company that did Pepper's Ghost holograms. Um, now, although the Robbie um, event didn't actually happen, I got very interested in the technology and stayed in touch with the company. And I think it was about a year later, they phoned me up and said, can you project manage um, a show for us out in Dubai? So I said, sure. And once I got sort of hands on with the technology, I realized that it, it was this very compelling mix of a technical um, requirement that has to be done in a very artistic way. Now, um, I'll go into maybe in, in, in a few moments, I'll tell you a little bit more about Pepper's Ghost. But the bottom line of it was that it's not, it, it, it's very basic laws of physics. You can't really negotiate them away and it has to be done exactly in the correct way. You can't, you can't compromise it. It's not like a lighting thing where you can say, well, you know, I'd like a light up there to the right in the truss and a, right, a light up there to the left in the truss oh, well, there isn't a truss, oh, well, never mind, I'll put the lights on the floor. If you can't rig the equipment in the right place, you don't have, it, it, it isn't going to work. You're not even going to start. So it was a very, um, it, it required a lot of technical discipline. But also what I liked about it was my job was to make a very demanding set of technical requirements look effortless and beautiful and elegant and in some cases I was hiding some very very big structures in plain view and you're, you're trying to create a magic trick so you're trying to, to create something that feels like a spontaneous appearance so a, a person who isn't really there looking like for all the world they are there but without being able to see basically how the trick's done so that was a very compelling thing for me um Fast forward a little further, I became aware of another technology, um, which Pepper's Ghost is quite, um, as I say, it's, it's demanding, but also the equipment is quite bulky. It takes quite a long time to do. Um, I realised there was something else out there that was a bit more compact, a bit easier to use. And at the time, a lot of people were saying to me, actually, it isn't very good. So I hadn't given it a lot of attention. But then when I eventually got to see it, I looked at it and I realised that it wasn't that it wasn't good. It was the people that were using it 
really weren't lighting it particularly well. And obviously, with my background as a lighting designer, it was, you know, I, I, it didn't take me very long for me to, um, to realise that I could do quite a lot with it. So I did a couple of bits and pieces with the gauze technology such as it was. And I also realised from my large experience of having toured equipment all the way around the world, that there were certain shortcomings, particularly with durability and also with the way that the image looks when you project it, that I thought could be improved. Um, so I made an approach to ask if the manufacturers were interested in um, letting me help them develop it. And they weren't. So I thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to do this on my own. So I did. So somehow I've ended up a manufacturer as well, um, which is as far as you can possibly get from the last minute deadline driven, um, it'll be all right on the night, you know, we are somehow going to get the show to happen against all odds. Um, the textile industry feel that they're responding on a pretty quick schedule if they respond to your email within a week so um it's not been without its frustrations it, it's a it's taught me patience which has been useful in pandemic because that's a skill we've all needed <laughs> welcome to the life of a manufacturer <laughs> yes yeah so you that's a great kind of summary i know that there are a ton of other things you've done and i could go down a dozen rabbit holes uh, but i'm not going to what what happened when the pandemic hit for you and your business? My my business had been, it was in the ascendant. It's definitely not a mature business because um, we were still and still are just finishing up on the R&D on certain aspects of the manufacturing side to the point where prior to the pandemic, if people have never heard of Hologramica and never heard of 3D Holonet, which is my product, that's no great surprise because we've done absolutely zero marketing, um, have, have really grown organically and not wanted to take on, um, sort of to, to push the business faster than I felt the... I, I was able to support the product. Um, so I've been trying to grow it slowly. There's things that I still want to improve from to make my life easier. I think the product's great, but um, there's certainly things in, in the manufacturing that could make could be easier for us without any detriment to the product. Um, and those were things that I wanted to put right before we started to try and go out in any kind of mass production um, but even so it was growing through word of mouth extremely quickly and um, everything was looking very rosy and then and then the pandemic hit <laughs> um, so what has that meant for us well obviously part of the entertainment business so projects started to fall away Fortunately, because we hadn't taken certain steps towards 
the, the final steps in the, the manufacturing that I wanted to get done, it meant that we hadn't committed ourselves to anything that was likely to take us down when the, the vast, you know, vast proportion of work fell away. So um, if there has to be a good time for a pandemic, it, it was kind to us from that point of view. Um, I also, you'll know about this, Graham, I also, um, just, just over a year ago, one year and one month ago, I managed to do a cartoon falling over the piece of scaffolding pipe that I put on the stage in a very cartoonish accident and managed to break my hip. So I, I went into lockdown three months before everybody else. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> This, this is my second Home Alone Christmas so and my second Home Alone New Year. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not asking for I'm not asking for sympathy from anybody, but uh, I kind of knew I knew what was coming. And I, I was able at least to be grateful and joyful for the fact that this Christmas and this New Year, I wasn't so afraid of falling off my crutches and doing myself even further harm. But I allowed myself a small sherry or two. Um, it wasn't it wasn't as miserable as last year's um but obviously it's changed things hugely um the company's fortunate in that it's been able to just contract into a very small very low cost base and it's also given me the opportunity which really wouldn't have existed otherwise um to do a lot of r&d now, what has been fantastic is, whereas before, a lot of our shows, that we have many different clients that were, were using, using holograms. Um, and I should probably explain at this point what holograms are. So we've not been done many favours by the movie industry um, 10 years ago everybody wanted Minority Report and these days they all want Princess Leia so what we don't have yet um, I'm sad to reveal is we don't yet have the small cylindrical disc that we walk into a room place on the floor and then either plug in or do some kind of voodoo and then spontaneously a 3D image shimmers up from out of this thing on the floor so what we're basically doing is we're doing an illusion and it's basically video. And I'll go in in a bit as to why it's so great that it's basically video. But imagine that you walk into a building that you've never been in before. You see somebody you know at the top of a flight of stairs in the lobby of that building. Now, you are going to look at that person, you haven't seen them in ages, and you think, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I just want to, I want to go and say hi to my friend. So without even, without even thinking, you've run up that set of stairs, you've run up them two at a time, and you're chasing your friend, and you catch them at the top. Now, the only way that you would have been able to do that is because you took in information, you, 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 you saw that set of stairs, and you made a massive set of assumptions. Because that set of steps agreed with every 
every other set of steps you've ever seen that has proved to be three-dimensional and solid and a viable set of steps, you assume, your brain assumes that this set of steps is going to behave in exactly the same way. So you don't even look at those steps when you're running up them. You've got all the muscle movements, everything. Your, your body is so used to making those assumptions and acting on them that off you go. It's, it's the only way, literally the only way we can get around the world. What we do with holograms is we take video, recorded video, so two-dimensional, normal video, which shot in a particular way. We present it in an environment that gives it a three-dimensional context, and we give your brain the same cues and the same information that it gets from real objects, and we allow your brain to make those assumptions. And your brain will will treat it exactly the same as every other unproven object in this world and the first thing it will do is accept that it's real so we there's different techniques to do with the the how you make the video it but it is the video clip it's played back off a normal playback system it can be part of a media server um, system that's also feeding content to screens or anything else I should say that there are two different types of hologram. Um, one is Pepper's Ghost. The other is the gauze hologram system that 3D Holonet is an example of. Um, both of them are basically 2D video, which is great because it means they can be distributed via a media server or anything else that deals with normal video. The content is filmed in a particular way, but there's nothing special about it. Pepper's Ghost is a system whereby video is projected onto a concealed screen. Now, normally that screen is placed on the floor. And then you get a shiny, transparent surface. Now, back in the day, this used to be glass. And you make a reflection of that image. If you look through if you look into the inclined glass you will see a reflection of whatever that video was but you will see it behind the glass you don't see it on it you see it behind it so what you're viewing is a reflection the best way to illustrate this is um it's quite a nice story actually the guy who basically took that, that Pepper's, Pepper's Ghost was invented by John Pepper and it was done as a Victorian stage trip. In modern day, it's done with um, extruded mylar. But the guy who took, basically had the idea of using the extruded mylar to update this trip, which obviously suddenly becomes something you can do on a much bigger scale because moving lumps of glass around is, is limiting. Um, the, the way he got the idea of doing it was he was sat in his car and he could see a reflection of his cigarettes which were out of view so he couldn't see the cigarettes because they'd slid down between the top of the dashboard and the windscreen but he could see the reflection of the cigarettes and it looked like they were sat on the bonnet of the car so if you think about that real world example that that pretty much tells you how Pepper's Ghost works um mm -hmm. These days, as I say, you use extruded mylar, 
you you have to have a space in the same way that cigarettes appeared on the bonnet of the car. You need space behind the um, angled mylar. First of all, so there's there's the real world physical possibility that that object could exist in that space. So in other words, if you had the glass and it came at an angle, but it went straight to a wall, then you would get the impression of your your video, which is a recording, obviously, of the object you want, the person you want to be, the hologram. It's going to look like they're wrong side of a wall. So that's not going to work. So you need you need the space, first of all, to give a viability to where the hologram is going to appear. But secondly, because we need this three-dimensional information to be around the object, you want to have a space that you can put lighting in, that you can put uh, visual cues into that allow your brain to make those assumptions. So Pepper's Ghost, as I said, it's got, um, it's, the, the equipment's fairly big, it's quite clunky. What's required is another surface whereby you have a high degree of transparency, but you can also create bright video. So 3D Holonet consists of a gauze, and the gauze has got real silver in the arms. Now, the reason it's got real silver is when you, when you talk about the silver screen of old, think back in the early days of cinema, they didn't have 20,000 ounce lumens of brightness coming out of their projectors. They had dim bulbs and somehow they had to make an image that was bright enough that a cinema full of people could actually enjoy it and that they could make an image size that was of a reasonable size. So they actually used to use real silver on the screens. So that's where we get this, the, it literally was the silver screen. That's what they were. We take, in the same way that Pepper's Ghost took a Victorian parlor trip, we are taking a technology that was originally explored via the medium of early cinema. But instead of having a solid screen, we've got a screen that's got, um, it's probably 80% gauze. So that gives you the transparency. When you light behind a gauze, the gauze disappears. When you light in front of a gauze, the gauze will appear solid. So we use a mixture of these two effects. So where the projections land on the surface, you've got the light in front of it, so it appears solid. So it appears like you've got a solid object where you've got a video. Where you don't have any projections, the surface goes transparent, you light behind it, so you can see a lit environment behind. So they also achieved the objective of defining that three-dimensional space that allows your brain to uh, believe that it's real. There was a comment and, and a question. So the comment around Pepper's Ghost, as you were describing, you know, the, the guy with his cigarettes, it, it reminded me of um, head-up displays on cars. So Exactly. You know, if you have a head-up display... The display is somewhere on the bonnet, so your eyes can focus on it at the same time as the cars, because if it was yeah. just in the windscreen, it, you wouldn't be able to see it. So I presume yeah. it's the same principle. It's exactly the same, yeah. Um, right. I, as you know, I ride a bicycle. We don't have heads up. Excuse me for coming up with, the, with the, such, a, such an antiquated technology. And, and you know, God, and who smokes these days, after all? Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, in the in the net technology, is the image um, in the plane of the net? Yes. 
Okay. So so the the image lands. It, it's created by the projections landing, the light hitting the net. So all of that's technology. Who has been using? You know, what sort of use cases have there been for these these holograms since you've been doing them? Very mixed, and it was you know having got involved with holograms, it was very much a hark back to my life with Verilite. So guess what? We do TV, we do live events, we do concerts. It, it's those identical markets. Um, and the parallels between my experience in the moving light industry and my experiences in the hologram industry are, have been very strong because, you know, once again, I'm working with what might be now called a disruptive technology. And, you know, it's it's also a new technology. So there's all the we, we, we used to have to fix the moving lights in cupboards because of all the patents you know, all the information yeah. couldn't be revealed. So, you know, once again, we're in the world. Of there's there's a lot of things that I've seen before that have all come together for me when, since I got involved in holograms. So, but typically what used to happen, you would broadly cluster our events, similarly to the moving lights, under let's let's call it entertainment even when they're with, within a business environment insofar as typically in the past what would happen would be we might do either a live or a pre-recorded hologram of a ceo who is going to address a, a, a conference obviously the, the ceo needs to get his message across but typically the conversations we would be having around that would be that this we want a wow moment for our show. We want something to grab attention. We've done a lot of fashion shows. Again, they've been things where the designers have really wanted to make a, a big statement and create some attention. So it's it's always been a very sort of attention grabbing type effect. What we've seen since pandemic is Obviously, the entertainment business is, is just completely on ice. But what people are realising is that if you take away the wow factor idea, what remains is a very powerful communication tool. So we might not be doing pop stars that have passed away. We, we might not be doing those kind of concert tours, which typically we were doing before. But we're finding there are people who have the need to communicate. They want to be able to communicate with an audience. And by audience, I mean a group of people who aren't, who are in a separate space from the person who wants to communicate with them. And we're finding that people are turning to our technology as a means to doing that. Now, what we've got at the moment is a situation where nobody can travel. People are typically having to communicate by phone calls or video meetings or email and all the rest of it. And frankly, it's exhausting. And it, it's all very well when all you're trying to do is kind of keep things going day to day and just do your sort of normal, basic communications. But we've now been going through this long enough that there are, there are occasions when people need to have something special that they need to say. 
and either they want to find a means of saying that in a way that's um, just a little bit different, but also in a way that's more effective. Because the thing that you have with holograms is, I, I call it, it's, it's an impersonal, in-person digital experience, an in-person digital experience. And what I mean by that is clearly the person in front of you isn't there. But all of the communication, all of the body language, how they're standing, how they hold their hands, do they feel awkward? All of that stuff gets communicated. So it's a much fuller communication than simply audio and video, which is what we're getting almost as two separate things when you're trying to Zoom. There's so much communication that's actually missing. And particularly when you're meeting somebody for the first time, that can be, it, it can be difficult to really form impressions. It can be very difficult to build relationships. And I've even been on Zoom calls where I've been meeting, and I'm doing the finger thing, meeting someone for the first time on what's supposed to be a video call. And that person has actually only been on audio. So I'm there on video and I haven't even got anybody to talk to. And that's extremely difficult. So all of this goes away when you've got a, a hologram in front of you. Because you, you really can pick up on all those little nuances and all those bits of body language. And the one thing that you do see with holograms that you just don't see people doing with Zoom is you don't see, for example, when you've got two people in a room and they're really getting into a conversation, is they'll both lean forward into the conversation. They'll both try and get physically closer. You never see that on Zoom. You actually see people more often actually sitting back as they relax They'll, they'll sit back and, and kind of, they're, they're relaxing into it, but paradoxically, you're seeing less of them. The communication is less complete. So it's a very tiring experience doing Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call. You're sat in the same chair. Your, eye, your, your focus of your eyes is always exactly the same. And the information that's coming across is incomplete. Whereas if you've got a hologram in front of you, it really is as close as you can get to having a real human, proper, emotion-triggering conversation that is more fulfilling and is more memorable. Your message actually gets driven home much more completely when all of your body language and all of your body signals are able to operate. I can attest to that because I've you know, I've had a demo from you with holographic telepresence um, and it is really believable in a way that most telepresence really is not believable it's really the the first time i've had that and that i think is is valuable i believe that uh one use case that that i think you've told me about in the past is with the indian prime minister um kind of bringing himself to multiple sites at, at one time is that something you do you think we'll see more of that was quite an extraordinary project. That wasn't a project I was personally involved in, but I think they did something like 4,000 holograms in, in the back of basically uh, containers throughout India. Modi is still their president, their prime minister. I, I won't say it's got a 100% case because I know there's also been candidates that were unsuccessful, including in France. It's very easy to get bogged down in individual uses of, a hologram and think that that's what 
explore and that's what we do with it. I think it's far more useful to understand that the technology is basically video, so it's very it, it's able to be transmitted, managed, created in a very understandable way for the AV industry. There's no voodoo there. You, there's nothing special about it. Once somebody's shown you how to shoot it and explained what the principles are, they, there's really nothing particularly difficult about it. What has been difficult is, uh, particularly with Pepper's Ghost, it took a lot of space, a lot of um, time to rig. As I say, the, the initial attraction for me was was how rigidly you had to follow the laws of physics because the foil has to be at 45 degrees or you start getting distortions in there. I mean, there's a little bit of tolerance, but not much. Um, but moving into a gauze technology means it's so much easier to do. I mean, literally, you tie the thing off to a truss or a bar. You, we will supply a net that's either got a chain weight already in the bottom or a pipe pocket or something like that. And it, it's like just rigging a backdrop. It's it's really not a, a difficult thing to do. And it's very quick. And the thing travels in a, a, a small, I mean, just like a rucksack. It's It's just... A world apart from trying to ship five meter foil pipes around the world in in aircraft that will only load one particular way because you can't put it across a plane. I mean, it, it's it's just so much more convenient and easier to do now. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's easier to think of it as more like a TV set. You know, it's a screen. It is just a screen. So provided you're making the correct type of content that's going to work holographically or even that isn't going to work holographically you have a choice you don't have to have every single piece of video that works perfectly as a hologram because if you just project normal video on it then guess what you 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 don't get a holographic effect because you can't see the background through it but if you want something that you, you're not trying to wow people every minute of the day and say oh you know how did this entity managed to spontaneously arrive in the middle of my stage and you want it as a tool then it's quite a, a useful tool and can be used in a number of different ways so there as i say it's a magic trick both pepper's ghost and um gauze systems there's uh, ways that they have to be rigged in order that you get the best effect but we use normal projectors normal video something around a, a, a 20k is normally perfectly adequate for doing a sort of single human size maybe five meter wide was that 16 foot wide by nine feet tall kind of image so um it's it's there's no sort of unicorn sparkly magic hologram dust and i think what i'm hoping is that when we come out of this Yes, it's great. And yes, I hope we can still do some of the big spectacular wow moment shows. But I would also like to see people that basically understand it for what it is and understand that it could be a very useful tool in a world where people really aren't going to be comfortable traveling for a, quite a long time. You know, I, I, I think we're going from an era where, um, you know, we, we used to call people that jumped on planes jet setters and we're now more likely to call them super spreaders so I, I think we're about to have a bit of an inversion in our travel aspirations for a couple of years yeah that was interesting we were talking about that before we started recording and that idea that 
in the old days, if you traveled a lot, it was you were the kind of top executive. And it may be that um, mm. nowadays, if you if you're the top executive, you get to stay at home and and uh, and broadcast yourself. I can see. I mean, you've talked a lot about the idea of of bringing holographic technology into the into the everyday and making it simple and make it reproducible, which is what you're doing with the net. But I also see, for example, the, the, the recent Billie Eilish live stream where she was using, as well as LED screens and things, uh, AR to bring stuff in front of her in that, in that uh, live stream concert. And we've been thinking about, you know, that that's almost a new art form. It's something that would be difficult to do in, in a touring event, but, but the technology that you have enables that because in the in the holograms i've seen that you've done they've been or that you've talked about they've been the telepresence that we've we've been talking about the often bringing back people um that are no longer with us and and making them believable on screen but another thing that i've seen in some of the work you've done has been like bringing someone to life but then kind of playing with that in a way that's not possible with a real person. So making them kind of fragment into a million bits and that, that kind of, it's believable for a while and then it becomes um, almost a, I don't know, a trick I was going to say, but, but so there's that element of magic. Yeah. It, I, know, I know what you mean. It's, it's kind of setting up the expectation of reality and then subverting it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's been various shows where we've done various things over the years, you know, having somebody walk on stage and then introduce themselves, um, you know, who's the hologram. Um, I'm actually, I, I had a meeting the other day with an artist who I I can't mention their name at the moment. Sure. But um, what, you're, you're, you're very correct in saying that, there's a unique opportunity for artists at the moment to explore maybe a type of art that they didn't have the opportunity to explore before. Mm -hmm. And for artists, it's live, live performances without an audience that allow them the freedom to manipulate reality. So, it's still got the credibility. It's not a music video because it's not a completely sort of um, manufactured piece of, thing, of yeah. art mm-hmm. or, or music art, if you like. Um, so it, it is a performance, but it gives them the opportunity to pull tricks to camera that wouldn't work from either multi-viewpoints or in front of a live audience for whatever reason. And there's an artist that I'm working with at the moment. Her videos mostly feature avatar caricatures of aspects of her personality. So she, she they are they are all aspects of her. So she she set herself up both for an ex, an exciting artistic journey, but also um, touring challenges. So she is interested in the first instance in putting together a performance that is live but allows her to explore these characters but if all we have to do is create the effects to camera 
then we can do things by recording her and using these virtual avatars as holograms and put her in a space with the avatars where we can film them doing things that um, just would, would be, let's say, very expensive or very difficult to do in the real world. So, for example, if we want the avatar to appear to be huge, we can put her at a distance back and drop the camera. And then suddenly you've got something that looks like a 25-foot-high avatar and a, and a six-foot-high person. So all, we, we, we've been talking through some ideas with her about how we might be able to actually give her the opportunity to perform with her own alter egos. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it does give her the opportunity also to take this on the road. In fact... Um, one one moment that will stick with me for the rest of my life was um, I did a Pepper's Ghost hologram of um, Homer Simpson. Okay. Now, <laughs> it was the first time that Matt Groening had ever been able to stand next to Homer Simpson, mm. ever. Which, which just sounds like a completely crazy thing. There were photographs being taken for the first time ever. You don't need, it's not something you've just seen on TV. There's no gadgets, no glasses. People were able to take a picture of this guy next to his most famous creation. Sure, sure. Just, just being able to, to make a, a, a yellow cartoon inhabit the real world mm-hmm. was an extraordinary experience. And, and it's, we accept the Simpsons as being such a real thing. You almost don't think of them as being cartoon. You kind of do, but you don't. But you so buy into their them being part of your life. You know, I, I say to people, I allowed Matt Groening to meet Homer, and it's almost like, well, so what? Oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. I think I've been talking um, to others on this series about the concept of doing things to create these immersive experiences and then taking them and touring them. However, what will touring look like at that scale? Will it be nowadays, well, in the past, let's say in the past, you'd go to your local theatre and see an artist. Now you see a live stream. Maybe in future there'll be something in between where you actually have fewer events so a tour has fewer stops and maybe each stop is for a few days and you rig things that you probably couldn't tour with every day like 3d sound or or um, holograms and then people either choose to come to that event traveling more than they would um, just for a local theater but but still being able to come to it but then there's a a hybrid streaming experience as well if you don't want to do that traveling do you see that as a um a way forward to create these sort of larger than life experiences yes uh, so these 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 do reflect some of the discussions that we were having actually the other day with this artist i mean you can tour holograms it's now easy enough that what well, we, we we can and we do you know whitney houston was doing multiple back-to-back shows around the UK with with our product and obviously sure. it is no longer with us. So so what's interesting to me is 
when I let Robbie Williams for the first time at Slane Castle, there was 110,000 people in the crowd. Only 100,000 of those people could actually physically see the stage. Hmm. Everybody else was watching it on screens. Now, part of the lighting designer's job, so part of my job, was to take the spirit of the artist and spread it in a way that everybody who was present at that show felt like they had seen him, although, in fact, they hadn't. Mm-hmm. Now, even some of those people who were physically able to see him, how many times have you sat at a concert that, that you, you can't even see them because you can't see through the head of the person in front of you and the guy's not even an inch big on stage? So you yeah. watch it on screens anyway. There's also the phenomenon where, for some reason, the more people there are between you and the stage, and the smaller the guy is on stage, the more expensive the ticket. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, for some reason, the stadium shows are, are hundreds of dollars a ticket, whereas the theatre shows are tens of dollars. A, you know, they, they, there's this kind of weird um, inversion of what you would imagine the experience should be. So part of it, we, we have to say, why is this? What are people buying into? Because clearly they're not buying into the in-person experience of actually being able to count the holes in the shoes of the guy mm-hmm. who's on stage in front of them. So what is it? One of the things is definitely the shared experience of being in a crowd. Yep, yep, definitely. And that, I think, is the one thing that's going to drive people out of their homes quicker than anything else, because even the people who don't even leave the bar, they still enjoyed the social side of it. And I think it would be easy to conclude that, oh, because people mostly sit there watching the thing on screens, we could save them the bother of going to the show and parking and all the rest of it if we can just bring the screens to them and they don't need to leave their home. Well, I think there's a small percentage of people for whom that might be enough, but I don't think that's why people really want to go to shows. So I think we we will be addressing different needs. We will be addressing different needs depending on who the artist is and the medium in which they express themselves best. So if you've got an artist, so let's say gorillas or something like that, that are a cartoon band, you could have gorillas on stage as holograms and they have been on stage as holograms. But somebody like Damon Alban, if he was going to be doing gorillas live on stage, and in recent years that hasn't had holograms there has been a real live physical band and musicians and backline and all the rest of it but at the same time he was doing a simultaneous av vr stream of the show but with the characters well you might be tempted to say well actually i'd rather see the online version rather than be there in the space or maybe you want your your ar device and be in the space all at the same time but clearly that particular artist is somebody who's who's not just a musician he he's very talented in a number of fields so i think some artists who 
I, I, I think it's going to be horses for courses. But mm-hmm. I think the idea of a hybrid show in a small venue, um, it's attractive on one level because everybody considers shows from the problem or the point of view of um, a safe audience in a pandemic environment or coming out of a pandemic environment. But you also need to consider how on earth you get the show actually into the stage. How do mm-hmm. you get it off the trucks? How do you get it built? How do you, you know, when you've got a, a heavy motor box, for example, that's a two-man lift, um, you've got people standing, you know, not even two feet apart trying to lift this thing and they're sweating and they're breathing hard. How do you do that safely? So I think there's going to be some aspects of shows are necessarily going to change. A lot of those big shows where we pay enormous amounts of money to experience something, a lot of the time what we're experiencing is a very expensive production. Well, I don't know actually how much budget there's going to be for very expensive productions when we get out of this. So I think we might well see a stripping back of musicians who want to play music in a very pure form, stripping back, cutting costs, going back into venues and playing music for live audiences on a smaller scale i think in parallel we will see other artists who otherwise might have expressed themselves through having monster trucks you know into entire sort of motorcades of of stage set might well take the opportunity to step into more of a virtual world but we'll see you know it's it's certainly an exciting period for artists because um they're getting the opportunity to work in a way that they haven't been able to work before yeah yeah, and some time to think about it. Um, where they can't, but you know, they can't go out and tour, and often they can't even record because they're all in different places if they're a band, or it's difficult to record. Yeah. So yeah, it's given people time to to go away and reimagine what their art might look like, and it may solve some other issues around monetization. I mean, part of the reason that people charge hundreds of dollars to, in stadium shows is because. A, they can, and B, they're not making any money on the recorded music because that's being served up as at a ten buck a month, all you can eat buffet style with with um, the streaming services. Mm-hmm. So people have had to find ways of making money, and that's that's more often. When I was growing up, people bought albums, and and gigs were really adverts for the albums. Whereas it's almost the reverse now. The artist made money on the album. The gigs were, were lost leaders, really. Whereas mm-hmm. now it's the other way around, and the gigs are what the, the gigs and the merch is what the money's made on, mm-hmm. and the, the recorded output is a is an advert for that. So, it's a reflection of how the industry is is changing. But what's interesting to me is this this kind of new hybrid art form that that gives people, gives musicians, gives artists, gives theatrical performers the ability to to reset expectations, financial expectations. And um, we may come out of this with a, with a wholly different set of things we're prepared to pay money for versus, you know, not prepared to pay money for. I think people are always prepared to pay money for satisfying experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, for for a lot of the artists that I've worked for, um, I'm not even quite sure how it's happened, but 
because I, I'm not a musician by any by any stretch, but I have always ended up in conversations and in some cases suggesting what the set list should be. And a set list needs to be a musical journey. It, it's not just a, 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 a random selection of songs determined by the tunings of the guitars or, or whatever, you know, by other factors. And it takes the audience on an emotional journey. You need a, a great show is a show that, that takes you into places you, you didn't expect to be when you're stood in a, you've, you've been standing all day in a, in a field being rained on. And you can still experience these enormous highs and enormous lows, partly through a collective experience, but also because you're being led there on a, on a very carefully curated journey. So the bottom line is that a good concert is a story. Yep. Totally. Any, any good storyteller in any medium will always have an audience and that will always be something that people are prepared to pay for because it takes them out of themselves. And there's a huge, there's going to be a huge demand for that as we come out of pandemic, because on one level, the fastest way for us to, to reset is to go back to as close to as it was before. That's the fastest way to, to get back to the way where we feel comfortable that we can start to rebuild lost ground and and put ourselves back in a comfortable place is to recreate what we had before now there's lots of people who are talking about you know can we do it greener can we do it this can we do it that i think they've got a tough job on their hands because i think when it happens it's going to happen very quickly and the fastest way to do it is to do it the way it was done previously not to reinvent it but um that isn't to say people shouldn't try, and it isn't to say that there aren't some permanent changes, for example, particularly home working and office working, that's going to force some of this change upon us. But I think we're going to have to resist very strongly just going back to what it was just because, you know, it's, it's how, how many DIY jobs have you ever set out with these grand ideas and, oh, I'm going to do this, oh, I'm going to do that, and then you run out of time and it's like, oh, well, I, you know what, I'm just going to have to do this and go back to it. and lo and behold, the job never gets done. So yeah. I, I think um, as the, the entertainment industry does have an opportunity to change that, I'm hoping that holograms can be part of the daily toolkit because I think there are genuinely, there's going to be people that don't want to travel as much. There's going to be artists that don't want to travel as much. They've, they've felt threatened. They've seen their family threatened by pandemic. And I don't think, you know, I, I think the top stars are going to be more resistant to going out on the road than they were. Um, they've realised that there's no pockets in a shroud. So I think holograms have a, a role of part, as part of that picture as well as being a sort of more normal, let's call it almost boring everyday business communication tool. Sure. Um, and I, I think the challenge for the AV industry is to work out ways to, to be realistic about the fact that, that the world is not about to be painted with rainbows when we come out of this. And also it's going to be a slow process 
that happens on a different time scale for everybody. I think it's going to be more a case that we look back and realise that we're out of it rather than there's a day where we suddenly go, well, you know, let, let's let's all spontaneously party in the streets today because to, today's the day it's all over. It's not like the end of a declaration of the war. It's going to be more that we've come to a, a mixture of being able to deal with it and, and manage it and everything else. Um, and I think people are going to be in a space where they are looking back at what their lives were and almost realising that the changes have happened rather than they were in control of the changes. Right. So, interesting. Interesting, because I I can see your point about people wanting, to, and there's certainly the point about people wanting to get back to doing what they were doing before as quickly as possible. And And I think I see it more in America than anywhere else in the world where all sorts of people would want to to you know kind of ignore all of this was happening and just get back and and do what they did before and then there's the other the other thing of you know trying to come back more thoughtfully mindfully do it differently and there's a third thing which is the way we've got used to doing things so the fact that you know I have a friend in Germany who says um the new hospitality is is the workplace because in the past you get a job, you go to an office. That's mm-hmm. kind of the contract. You don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. And now, and obviously it was a trend towards homeworking and and you know for some jobs being a digital nomad and all of that. But everyone's had to do the homeworking stuff now, so they all know it works. So when when your boss says you know, you're all going to come back in the office. Everyone's going to go, well, why? You know, why should I commute 45 minutes to the office when I can work totally from here? Now, I don't think that's the right way either. I think some sort of hybrid approach is probably the best thing because there's certain work you can do well in the home, there's certain work you can do in the office. Certain people like, um, for example, me and and you actually can can work easily from home because um, we don't have a lot of you know, you know people around, uh, but if you're twenty five, twenty something sharing a, a flat, or if you're a young parent with with kids being homeschooled or running around the place, it's way more difficult to work from home. So there's there's all sorts of different use cases, and I think think that's going to be the case with a lot of life that that. Um, the, the, how, what we come back to is not going to be something completely different and it's not going to be something exactly the same, but it's going to be some sort of mix, taking the best bits of what we've learned over whatever length of time this goes on for, melding it with the best bits of what we had before and coming up with something different. Mm, well, it, it, I, th- I, think, I think the majority of the workforce to some degree will have that imposed on them they won't necessarily have been given that choice um it's up to the enablers so it's up to the people putting in place those communication systems so integrators and users of av systems you you can only work as well as the communication allows you to um i i think also though What's interesting is I would I th- I think there are a few there are a number of people 
who have managed to continue their jobs without too much change through the pandemic. But I don't think there are many companies who, as a whole, can say that they have been unaffected. They've either done an Amazon and just been exponentially more busy, or they've done an entertainment business and they've sure. just had nothing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So um, there's a lot of companies that are are busy but on a very reduced workforce. There, so there are a lot of very artificial situations at the moment, and also bear in mind the schools aren't operational either. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're making work at the moment under unusual conditions may or may not be proved to be real-world viable. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree um, with that. And, and there's also different sorts of work. So when people went into lockdown... Um, it's it's easy to get stuff done at home. What the difficult bits are, are where you're coming up with new stuff to do. So, you know, the whole ideation process depends often on people getting together and sparking ideas off each other. So you can go home and finish your to-do list for the first month or two, but then you get to a point where it's like, okay, I've got to work out what what you know a company has to work out what next to do and and that's more difficult remotely anyway we could probably talk all night and have (laughs) many many occasions um but we need to bring this to a close so it's kind of fascinating for me to 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 hear you talk about holograms and think you know the place they may play in what comes next but to finish off with i want to just ask you if there's anything else you you know you you'd like to say as a final comment the only other thing i would like to shamelessly plug is um the the fact that during lockdown one of the things that had been very apparent to us um was that we had always done systems mostly on a large scale that were bespoke for every venue what became very clear during lockdown was that we needed to think smaller not bigger we, we needed to be creative to become more boring, not more creative to be more outlandish. And one of the things that we spent a lot of time and a lot of effort doing was coming up with and refining a portable system that's on a small scale, that still looks good, that works well. And we kind of had something before that we call it holopops. It was something that we had before that it was almost like a kit. We kind of had an assembly of bits that all went together and came together with a really good result. There's certain technical aspects to to do with projecting on gauze um, and the fact that the light passes through the holes and makes another image means that you've always got to manage what that second image looks like and where it is and we found a way of overcoming it which meant we could miniaturize the system which meant that we could standardize the system so we came up with something that that actually looks very good um both in terms of the image quality but also in terms of the box that it lives in and the sort of visual characteristics of it um so we'd only just finished that when lo and behold, we got a phone call from a client saying that Kanye West wanted to give a hologram to um, his wife, possibly soon to be ex-wife, if you believe the tabloids, um, Kim Kardashian, 
and he wanted to give her a hologram of her late father. So our very first, the, the debut for our brand new Holopops Ultra was um, at Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday party, which was, it was a logistical challenge to say the least because um, very, very short notice to get this thing together. We scrambled it. We had to take the one out of the office. We only had one, which was the basically the prototype. Um, had to throw it in a box and had to get it to Tahiti. Now, most freight actually travels on commercial flights and there's very few commercial flights going anywhere near Tahiti. So um, we couldn't send it by freight. So we managed to freight it to LA where our clients picked it up and it travelled with their crew to Tahiti as checked baggage, um, including on, they, I think they got pulled in customs, um, that the cust- they had a customs inspection and managed to miss the final tiny plane that was going to take them to the island it was on. Um, so they had to charter, <laughs> charter a plane to get this thing across there. Wow. So, um, we 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 have had some some um adventures with what was intended as our very nice portable corporate solution um it it had a, a very rock and roll debut <laughs> i was i was wondering whether you were going to mention that particular <laughs> job it certainly got a lot of press over here 5 million views Anyway, thanks so much, Liz. And to to finish off with, I mean, how do people get in touch with you and Hologramica, Holopops? www.hologramica.com is the Hologramica website. www.holopops.net is the Holopops website. There's phone numbers and contact forms on both of those. I'm on LinkedIn, I think just as Liz Berry from memory. We've got an Instagram channel. As I, as I said, it's just video. We, we want to demystify it. We want people to understand it. We don't want, you, you can't grow an industry by telling everybody it's all smoke and mirrors and how difficult it is. And we don't expect people who haven't done it before to be all knowing and be able to ask for what they want so we're very happy to have conversations with people and if what they want can't be done or it's not going to look good then we'll just tell them but um yeah just just want to spread the word really and i'm grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to talk to your customers and your friends and your clients and um yeah it it would be lovely to if there were any follow-up phone calls or follow-up contacts because i'd like to continue the conversation Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Liz. And thanks for everyone listening. Um, as always, tell us what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, leave reviews, leave ratings on wherever you're listening to this, Spotify, Google, uh, Apple, uh, SoundCloud, our own website. And please come back and listen to some more episodes. So thanks very much and goodbye for now.